Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Turn with me very quickly to Hebrews chapter 12. Another name for Jerusalem. It is a a, a reference that is used throughout Scripture, Mount Zion. I want us, and we were looking last week at why, what was it about Zion that was so, what was it about Jerusalem that attracted the heart of God? And we looked at that through the lens of what is the kind of church God is looking for. And we, just as a little bit of review, we were looking at why, what was it about Jerusalem that attracted David's heart? What was it that hooked his heart? It was a centrally located headquarters for his kingdom. Some scholars believe that was the case. You know, that's why he picked it. Uh, It was a pagan city uh, run by the Jebusites, and David took it, made it his stronghold. But that doesn't, you know, the centrality of its location does not explain the, the fact that David, as a young man, when he killed Goliath, drugged that pagan head to that pagan city and stuck it in front of the city of, of what was then called uh, Jabus. And David renamed it according to its ancient name, Salem or Jerusalem. It was the city of peace. And it was David who had this revelation uh, in Psalm 110. It was David who wrote this. David had a revelation no one else had, and that was this, that there was another priesthood. There was the priesthood of Levi, the Levitical priesthood that Moses had a revelation about and instituted, but Scripture says that that was a temporary priesthood. It started with Moses and ended with Jesus. Moses understood there was this other priesthood, but he, he seemed to think that it was a one-off thing. He understood there was this guy named Melchizedek that was a priest of the Most High God. Abram understood he was a priest of the Most High God, but it was David that understood there was the order of Melchizedek. It was David that had this revelation that there was this eternal priesthood, and David himself functioned in that priesthood. Now, if you look in Genesis, when you get to the city of Salem, it says that the king was a A, a priest of the Most High God, and B, he was the king of Salem, or the prince of peace. He was the king of the city of Salem. So he was a priest king. He was the first guy that shows up in Scripture occupying both these roles. It was a rare thing. We move to the the New Testament, we realize that that is the priesthood that you and I function in. We are priests and kings or priests of the Most High God, and we rule and reign with him. Jesus rules in the priest. Uh, the, the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. So David had this revelation. I was down in a tumble last night preaching at our tumble church. And I was talking about how David established this New Testament concept under the Old Covenant. David actually lived as a New Testament man under the Old Covenant. He operated, he reached into the future by faith, by revelation, and pulled the future into the present and lived as a New Testament guy. He ate the showbread. He wore a linen ephod. He had the audacity to ask for forgiveness for both murder and adultery, the two sins for which there was no forgiveness, there was no sacrifice under the old covenant. Other other sins, you would sacrifice an ox or a dove. That one, you are the sacrifice. You're a dead man. You commit adultery or murder, you're dead. But David had the audacity to go before the throne of God and say, have mercy on me, O God. Create a new heart in me. And he got his request. Why? Because David had a 
a revelation of new covenant reality under the old covenant. That's why David would restructure everything. He didn't, he didn't abide by the three-tiered structure of Moses' tent and his son Solomon's temple, where there were only certain people that were allowed in. David would cry, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Everybody else assumed that, that was already a settled issue. You had to be a Levite. But David pressed in for revelation and discovered a back door called the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so David created this pup tent that anybody could get access to the presence. David went and established that at this place called Mount Zion. And Mount Zion then became synonymous with Jerusalem, but it also became synonymous with the reign and the rule of God. And so this Mount Zion in Hebrews chapter 12, that's all, that's all review here. Mount Zion is juxtaposed or, or put in contrast to Mount Sinai in this passage. And I want us to look at this. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and listen to what it says in verse 18. For you, I'm, I'm going to read out of the ESV. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. I love that. Angels in festal gathering. It's the only time in the New Testament that word festal is used. It means they're partying. Under the new covenant, we don't come to a mount that is with trembling and fear. We come to one with angels that are partying down in festal gathering. We need to look for ways to use that word around here, festal. They were in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? And with that, the writer of Hebrews juxtaposes these two realities, these two covenants, these two experiences, the, the old covenant and Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai represented the giving of the law and the old covenant reality. And in, when the, the law was given at Mount Sinai, God told Moses, he said, go tell the people, prepare yourselves for three days because I'm going to come down on the mountain and I'm going to speak to you. And on the third day, God did. And God told the people of Israel, he said, listen, he, he told Moses, tell them, don't approach the mountain. You can come close, but don't touch it. Don't let yourselves or even your beasts touch the mountain lest you die. And this dark cloud descended on the mountain and there were peals of thunder and lightning and there was fire on the mountain and a, and a, tr a loud trumpet sound so that the mountain shook. Can you imagine? The people trembled in fear and all of a sudden they heard the voice of the Lord speaking. And they all cried out and they said, don't let God speak to us anymore lest we die. Moses, you talk to God and you let us know what he said. You be the mediator. We can't handle this. 
And tragically, with that, that desire, that, that, that agreement that they, they came into, they cut themselves off with intimacy. They were left with the command without relationship. They didn't have that intimate relationship. And God, uh, uh, Moses uh, tried to comfort them, and he said, Do not fear, for God is trying to make you fear him. But you got to look at it in the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, it means this. Do not fear, because God's trying to make you fear him. <laughs> it says, God, God is wanting to instill the fear of the Lord in you so that you don't have to be afraid of him. Because if you fear God, you have nothing to fear about God. But if you don't fear God, you have something to be afraid of. And so he shows us this picture of this mountain, and it's, it's a fascinating story. I encourage you to get into it and read slowly through that scenario. God tells Moses, you can bring your brother Aaron up as the priest, and then I want you to bring 70 elders, and they're gonna, they, they ate with God on an on a emerald sea. They saw God, and they ate with God and supped with him. And, but the, the, so there's this, these levels of intimacy in this passage. There were the people of Israel that could watch from afar. Then there were the elders that were brought into the, the, this encounter with Moses. And then there was Aaron that was able to go a little farther. And then finally Moses who spoke to God face to face. It's, it's a fascinating passage. The writer of the Hebrews says, that's not what we have been invited into. And he, he gives, he contrasts Mount Sinai, that experience. And this mountain signifies the entire old covenant, the, what they were being invited into. And he juxtaposes it over against this thing called Mount, Mount Zion. And this Mount Zion uh, metaphor, this Mount Zion title becomes a metaphor for the new covenant that we're entered into. And we know it's more than the physical place in Jerusalem because he says in this passage, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. You can't touch this thing. It's a spiritual mountain. We talked last week when you read how the prophets refer to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They talk in these poetic lofty terms and you can come to only one of two conclusions. Well, three conclusions. Either they are deluded and they don't know what they're talking about. They're deceived. Number two, they're being deceptive because they're talking in grandiose terms about this mountain. It is the highest, the lofty of, loftiest of peaks. No, it isn't. Jerusalem is not a huge mountain. It's more like a kind of a craggy hill. So either they're deceived, they're deceiving, or... They understand something that you don't see with your natural eyes. That there was a spiritual reality that had been established by David's worship. That David understood there was a throne and an altar way back in Salem. And there, that was the seat of authority of this, this kingdom priesthood of Melchizedek. And David, by revelation as a young shepherd boy, read the scrolls and realized that so much so that as a young boy, he understood what others didn't understand. So when he killed Goliath, he took that big old giant's head and drug it across the wilderness and took it to that city as a prophetic word. I'm coming for you next when I get the anointing and I get the crown. 
And the first thing David did when he united the northern and southern kingdom is they went into this water shaft and they took the city. So there was this throne of authority. There was this water source that was the source. And, and the prophets speak of that in poetic terms. There is a river who makes glad the cities of our God. Ezekiel talked about this river going to the nations and, and bringing healing wherever it goes. And it's a reference to this physical stream, the Gihon Spring, which again is talking in pretty grandiose terms and you see the reality. But there was something more behind this. Even this throne, it says that to this day, Jesus rules and reigns from the throne of David. To me, that's fascinating. That there was this human being, a son of men, a fallen human being, an adulterer and a murderer, but he had revelation in a broken heart. He was a man after the heart of God, and he caught God's heart, so much so that David makes a vow to God in Psalm 132, and he says, I'm going to make for you a house. I will give no rest to my eyelids until you have a place, a resting place on earth where you are the preeminent guest and you are waited upon. David makes a vow, and later on in that passage, God says, I'm making a vow to you. I'm going to establish your household. We see it again in 2 Samuel chapter 5, I believe. It might be chapter 7. David says, it's not right that I live in this, this mansion and panels of cedar, and God lives under a tent. And Nathan the prophet says, God is with you. Do whatever's in your heart. Then Nathan gets with the Lord and corrects him and says, tell him he's not the one to build it. David had it in his heart. He said, I want to make a house for the Lord. And if you read that passage, David said, I'm going to make a house for you. And God said, no, you're not. But I'm telling you what, I'm going to make a house for you, David, and I'm going to establish your household forever. And one of your sons will sit on the throne throughout eternity. And that son is the son of David, King Jesus himself. So here we have this spiritual mountain a spiritual river, and a spiritual throne that literally King Jesus rules the nations of the earth. He rules the cosmos from this spiritual throne created by David's hunger. These are, this isn't just poetic terms. This is a literal throne in the spirit that David ruled from, now Jesus rules from. And so we have these realities, and that is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He's talking about what you and I enjoy, but he's talking about what we enjoy together. And this is what I want us to understand this morning, that when you and I come together in worship, that there is a reality we step into as the body of Christ convening before the throne. There is more going on than you and I often realize we look around and we see our friends that we worship with. And every now and then we may sense a little of activity in the air that we may, some of you do see, some of you don't, and we, we sense things. But I'm telling you, this passage gives us an outline to what's really going on in the room. And if you can tune into this thing, if you can realize the reality we step into when we convene as the body of Christ, we can do kingdom business together. Just like David established worship and a throne, and from there the kingdom of God began to advance from the tabernacle of David, that's what God desires for every house erected in his name. That as a kingdom family, we gather together and we move things in the spirit. It is not just about us. That's right. yeah. there, there are much bigger things going on here. 
It isn't just about us sitting around and we liked the music and we got ministered to and we learned how to do life through a nice message. All of that is essential and it's foundational, but it's not the ultimate God is moving us to. God wants to leverage your life, leverage your surrender to move things in the spirit and establish his purposes in the earth. And one day we'll stand before God and in that day we're going to see what we were really called to. And I, for one, do not want to stand before God and realize that I made church about me. That I made it all about me being happy and healthy. And I didn't leverage my life for his kingdom purposes. I want a crown to lay at his feet. I want, to, I want to take the sum total of my life that's been burnt in the fiery furnace of judgment, 2 Corinthians talks about. He said, some build with wood, hay, and straw. Some build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And Paul tells us that those elements of our lives that we've labored for go into a blast furnace of judgment, and they come out the other end. And what is left from the blast furnace of God's evaluative judgment I believe, is what our crowns are made of. And there are going to be in that day people who merely have ashes on their head. That universal historical sign of grief because their life has been reduced to mere ash. They, they made it to heaven, but they just made it through the flames. And there's others. There's going to be gold, silver, and precious stones. And I believe that's what God's going to mold their crown out. He's going to place it on their head as a reward. And then you know what we're going to do with them? We're going to give them back. We're going to stand before him, and we're going to see him face to face, and we are going to be blown away. It's going to be better than we ever imagined. And in that day, we're going to wish that we had more elements to put in our crown, because in that moment in time when we're worshiping God, we're going to say, Lord, I give my life all over again, the sum total of everything I ever did, and I get to give it back to you again, and we're going to lay our crowns at his feet. We need to leverage our life. I'm telling you, this passage gives us the reality of what's really going on when we enter into worship. Let's read it again. He said, you have not come to Mount Sinai, is what he's insinuating. But then he says this, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. Now, just real quick, when he says you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, he's saying it's not a physical reality, it's a spiritual reality. It's not a biological lineage of Levi, it's the spiritual lineage of Melchizedek and David and Jesus. But when he says you have not come to, the the Greek construct, what it's really saying is we come through that, we come through the law, we come, that is part of our heritage, that's part of our experience, and we need that establishment of the fear of the Lord, but it's not the destination, it's somewhere we pass through. That's not the ultimate The ultimate is Mount Zion, where we come with myriad of angels in festal gathering. I want to get a t-shirt that says that. (laughs) Myriad of angels in festal gathering. And so he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So when we come... And we worship. We have come to Mount Zion. Now, this idea of mountains in in the in the ancient days, uh, mountains were looked at as the place where the gods dwelt. You know, Baal had his own mountain. 
Baal's mountain was bigger than God's in the physical. But the Israelites would say, uh, we, you know, they talk about there, the mountain of the great north. The, and it's not even in the north. It's in the center part of the city or the country. But they were talking spiritually, prophetically. They understood that God, according to Psalm 110, was going to extend his scepter from Mount Zion. And so it was the Mount Sinai was known as the Mount of God. Then Mount Zion became known as the Mount of God. Mountains were places where the gods dwelt. And in the ancient mind, mountains were not places of recreation. They didn't have grappling hooks and all the equipment to go climb mountains. They were imposing scary places. And in their mind, it's where, he- where the earth rises into the heavens and disappears beyond the clouds. It was where heaven and earth touched and, and God could touch down and the gods would meet with people on the mountains. And so we have this idea all through ancient literature. And it wasn't that God was accommodating this mythology. It was that this mythology came out of the reality that God had established the mountain. Matter of fact, there were two ideas behind the place of God on earth. There was Eden, the, the, the dwelling place of God, and it was a lush garden. And the ancients looked at these lush gardens as the places of the gods. But they also looked at the mountains. And there's one passage in Ezekiel that refers to Eden as the mount of God. So I don't know how big a mountain it was. I don't know. We don't know where Eden was exactly. We have a proximity, you know, if you look at the geography. But it was a mountain. It was a mountain of God. It was a a lush green place. It was the place where God would, he would come down and meet with men. And then under Moses, God would come down and meet with Moses at Mount Sinai. Now he says, here, we come to Mount Zion and God comes down and meets with his people at Mount Zion. It's the meeting place of God. But it wasn't just a meeting place. It wasn't just the place where we meet with him. It was a place of judicial authority because Scripture talks about God ruling and reigning from Mount Zion. And again and again, you see this theme of God going to war against the kings of the earth from Mount Zion. In the Old Covenant, that was a literal thing. Again, a physical mountain and physical war. And the new covenant, it's a spiritual mountain and it's spiritual warfare that these rulers and principalities and powers in heavenly realms, God begins to extend his scepter from Mount Zion when the people of God gather round and God begins to execute judgment and he begins to shift things in the spirit. And so this is the reality we step into. We step into the mount of God when we gather together as the saints. Now listen to what he says. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the angels in festal gathering. We need to understand when we come together as the body of Christ, it's not just us. There are innumerable angels in festal gathering. Randy Bixby, I'll never forget. I still think of this word. It was right here. You got it. This was back when this was K-Hop, and Randy Clark came that first time. We were back in K-Hop, and Randy does an impartation time, and it was wild. We all just got blasted, and Randy went into this vision about these, these instruments of, mu- there were musical instruments, but instruments of war that were hung among the walls. You remember that? And, and he said he knew that there were other places 
He said the angels were excited. They were hanging these instruments of war, these musical instruments. Some he recognized. He said, some of them, I've never seen instruments like this. But they were instruments of war and instruments of music. And he he heard the angels talking and, and the insinuation. They were excited that they had a place, but he knew there were other places around the earth that God was placing his resources for the coming days. And he saw bags of golden coins being dropped. I'm thinking, glory. <laughs> we need it. Send it in. It's because God rules and reigns from Mount Zion where the tabernacle of David, that, that worship, that entertainment of his presence is established. When God has that, there begins a, a mountain begins to rise in the spirit from which God begins to exercise authority in a region. I insinuated, I said it this morning, that those of you that don't need prayer, understand, stay engaged in worship because you're not just, you're worshiping for others this morning. When we come, it's not just, we, we don't merely worship because God is worthy and that's a good enough reason to worship forever, okay? That's a settled issue. He is worthy. And if for no other reason, we can park it there. But there's more. We worship because we enjoy it. And the fact that we enjoy it is a form of worship. I used to be a weird person. Some of you are thinking, Pastor, you still are. I used to be a weird person, and I had this idea that if I enjoyed worship, somehow I defiled it. I know, I'm not weird. So I was, I was really in a dilemma because I started worship, uh, enjoying it, and then I felt guilty, you know. I felt like somehow if I enjoyed it, I defiled it. But I began to realize, no, my enjoyment in and of itself is an act of worship because I want to be with him, and that delights him. And it's this mutual exchange of affection. Just like David made a vow, and God said, no, I'm going to make you a vow. I'm going to build you a house. No, I'm going to build you a house. Lord, I love you. Yeah, I love you. And there's this mutual exchange that happens. And if I don't enjoy it, it's somewhat insulting. If I told my wife, honey, I'm going to show you how much I love you. Even though I don't like to be around you, I'm going to be around you. After I woke up with the knot on my head, you know, I mean, that, that'd be insulting. The fact that I enjoy her is part of, it's an expression of my love. So we worship him because he's worthy. We worship him because we enjoy it. And that in and of itself is worship. But there's this third dimension to worship, and that is we worship for others because it creates an environment that King Jesus steps into with numerous angels, innumerable angels in festal gathering. There you go. I was looking for the word. And, and he steps into that space and begins to exercise his rule. He extends his scepter from that place. And you, you, you may come in, in the, this, this week and you had a great week and you're not real engaged because, man, life is good and you're, you're kind of distracted by how good things are going. I'm telling you, you need to be engaged for the person who didn't have a good week. You need to be engaged for possibly that girl that wandered in that is being trafficked and she made it to church this morning and she needs to be in a place where all of a sudden there's an open heaven and she finds some relief. We're worshiping for this neighborhood Christopher visited a church. I, I read about it years ago, but Christopher visited it. It was back in the 90s. They were in revival, and in this church, they were having a tremendous outpouring of the Spirit. There was a lady that lived up the block from the church, and about 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings, she'd be smoking her cigarettes and drinking her strong coffee, 
just watching the news on Sunday mornings, and she began to be uncomfortable about 10 a.m. every Sunday morning because something started coming in her living room. So she said she started at 10, she would go to the, the kitchen and watch on a little TV in there. She said, but after a couple weeks, it started making its way into the kitchen. So she retreated to the back bedroom of the house, and she would watch it back there. And she, she showed up at church one morning. She said, it made it to the back bedroom, and I know it's coming from here. I need to figure out what this is. Jesus invaded her house when the people of God began to worship. When you begin to engage heaven and God begins to come down, he meets with us at Mount Sion. I will meet with you there. When he does that, there are people, they don't have language for it. All they know is they feel tormented and they feel despair. They're discouraged. They have no hope for their life. But when they come in here, something lifts for a while. And they begin to have some hope. And there's an open door for us to step in. Last night, I was down in a tumble, as I told you, and I had the joy of seeing an old friend of mine. His family took me in when I was living on the streets, and I haven't seen this guy in probably 35 years. And he comes into the meeting last night. Well, I've noticed that on our Facebook Live, his name started showing up a few months back. He'd say, so-and-so has logged in. I'd say, hey, and he'd never respond. And uh, my dad called me a couple weeks ago. He said, guess who came to church? It was him. So last night, there he came. And it was funny because we both looked so different, you know. And, uh, I said, well, we, we could have passed each other not knowing who we are. I, I can see you in there, you know. And, uh, and he began to share with me that he had his first stroke at 37 years old. He's 50 now. Recently, he had several strokes and he was explaining in his own way that all of a sudden I started thinking about God, and I guess I was the reference point because he knew that I became a preacher, you know, and we knew each other back. Then he started logging in, and then he found out we have a church in a tumble. He started showing up. And he started telling me, kind of teared up, he said, do you remember that, that sermon you preached from your, your recliner at your house that day you guys got snowed out? I said, yeah. He said, remember when you had everybody put their hand on their heart? He said, something happened to me. And uh, I'm just, it was, I was so blown away. And uh, man, God's touching this guy. And he, he was reaching out and he began to enter into something over Facebook out of Mount Zion coming out of this house. There was something happening. So pray for him, him, John and Laura, John and Laura, <laughs> yeah, pray for them too, but John and Laura and uh, Hallelujah. Okay, I want you to see here real quick here. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels and festal gathering into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's speaking of you and I. Your enrollment is already in heaven. I, I just love that. Our enrollment in heaven. We come in, we're already, we've, we've got our enrollment. I'm already registered there. I come in and I'm, I'm already enrolled in heaven the believers, the saints. But listen to what else he says. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. So God enters into this thing with us. But then he says this. This is, this is crazy. Well, say that reverently. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
What is he talking about? To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, some of you may have come from a Catholic background or even a Presbyterian background or Lutheran. Even the Methodists preached on this. We Pentecostals, we independent churches and Pentecostal denominations, we don't really talk about this. But what he's talking about is he's referring to the great cloud of witnesses he mentioned earlier. And what he's saying is that when we come into worship, there is entering into a partnership with those who have already stepped over. We're worshiping with the saints in heaven. Every now and then we'll hear them. When we were in Korea last year, I'll never forget, it was one of the most holy moments I've ever been in. And we were just rejoicing, singing this celebrative vineyard song and, and, uh, with a bunch of Presbyterians, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God just came in. And this holiness came in, and people just started to fall over. No catchers. I mean, this, you know, this, is, this isn't like part of their faith experience. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm just, I'm just we, we're on the second floor of a missions base. You can, the floor is kind of boom, 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 boom. And I'm, just the fear of God came out. I was just crying. I, and uh, Christopher says, Dave, you can come up here. And I'm thinking, I ain't moving. I ain't touching this, man. I'm just, and I, he invited Catherine up. And Catherine came up. And she was just weeping and weeping. And Catherine came to me later and she said, Pastor, I heard the martyrs' song. I heard them singing in heaven. It was, there, were, there were those in the room that had lost family members to the North Korean government. There were the, some of their colleagues that were, were, were preachers had been killed by the North Korean government. These are people who are risking their lives on an ongoing basis. And many of them had family and friends that had already gone before as martyrs. And Catherine told me, and I'm thinking, what I was feeling, I believe it. You could tell me anything right now. That night, Christopher shares with me, he says, Dave, he said, what were you feeling? And I said, man, I just, just it was such a holy moment. He said, I'm telling you, it was like, he said, I felt like the, the, the ceiling peeled back, and it's like the great cloud of witnesses were looking in. And I looked at him. I said, have you talked to Catherine? He said, no. The next day, one of the North Korean defectors got up, and she shared a testimony about how she had worshipped with 70 believers in North Korea. She says, I believe they've all gone to be with the Lord now. She'd been in prison numerous times. Precious little gal. I wouldn't mess with her. She's a tough little chick, you could tell. And she said, but last night during that service, I heard them singing from heaven the martyr song. I looked at Catherine, she's bawling all already again, you know. And she began to sing out the martyr song. And Catherine said, that's what I heard. You see, there are, that happens on an ongoing basis. There's this worship service that merges together that often we're unaware, but we have a witness in Scripture that's what's going on. The high church, the Catholic church, calls it the communion of the saints. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the communion of the saints. Now, there's different beliefs of what that really means. Some believe the communion of the saints is just what I said. In worship, there's a, there's a melding of environments that heaven and earth mix their worship together and ascend towards the throne because we are part of the universal body of Christ made of the living and the dead. And the greatest worship service in all of human history is happening up there. 
And sometimes we break through and we mix ours with theirs. Some believe the communion of the saints literally is the saints are praying for us. I would, now be careful here. Okay, just hang with me, okay? You're going to think I'm a heretic. Let me explain myself. I agree. I believe the greatest prayer meeting in human history is taking place around the throne right now. I don't believe that they abandoned the cause once they crossed over. They are invested and they are engaged. Now, there's others that take it, they take it a little farther. The Catholic te Church teaches that we can pray to the saints so they can then pray for us. I don't believe that. I don't pray to the saints, but I'll tell you what, I mix my prayers with theirs. Revelation, I want to say it's chapter 5. John says, I saw, well, it was when the fifth seal was taken away. That was the five in the passage. And he said, I saw the martyrs beneath the throne crying out to God, how long, how long do you avenge our blood and judge the inhabitants of the earth? That's a prayer meeting. To me, it's a fascinating passage. It's a little peek into what's going on up there. They're underneath the altar, it says. Isn't that fascinating? They're, they're, the martyrs are underneath the altar. I'm mean, like, what, what are they doing underneath? Why there? Why did he see them underneath the altar? This is what I believe, okay? This is the conclusion I've come to. I hold it loosely. I believe that why John saw them underneath the, th of the altar is because they're still underneath that burden. They're still lifting their sacrifice from their life before the throne now. It's similar to what David did in Psalm 132 when he said, Oh Lord, remember my father David and the suffering that he endured. He's lifting up David's past sacrifices, a dead guy's sacrifices before the throne as intercessory leverage to move the heart of God. And these saints are still lifting up the burden and they're still wanting the sacrifices they made in life to make a difference. They are still invested in the cause. I would argue that they are more invested than you and I because they see what's really on the line. They see the glory of the one that we worship. And so they're still lifting that life up to him. And they're saying, Lord, how long? They're saying, how long till we see the breakthrough that we paid a price for with our sacrifices? How long till you judge the inhabitants of the earth? That judgment, it's, it's a judicial evaluation. It's, it, they're saying, how long, Lord, before you balance the scales of human history and tip it in, in, in favor of the kingdom of God? He's not talking about wishing for the death of people, that people would be crushed. It's talking about, Lord, how long till you exercise your judgment and you tip the scales and the answer of the Lord is, be patient. He clothes them in white. And he said, be patient for until the full number of those who will give their life for the cause is met. Because there's something about that sacrifice that will in and of itself be the tipping point that God will enter in and begin to release what he's going to do on the earth. When you and I come in worship, you need to understand, if you have loved ones, that passed away in Jesus, when we come to worship, there is a communion around the throne with God. And those saints, it's like the air, the air gets thin. We come, you have come to Mount Zion, one element of which is this, the spirits of righteous men already made perfect.
That's what we come into. That we are in partnership with those who have gone before us. And we're adding our prayers to theirs. We're adding our sacrifices to that which they've already poured out. And we see especially those who gave their life for the cause still living underneath the burden of that sacrifice, lifting it towards the throne. There is more going on when we come together. And all of that results in King Jesus extending his scepter from Mount Zion and beginning to exercise his judicial evaluation and tipping the scales in favor of the kingdom of God on earth. So I'm here to tell you this morning, when we worship, there's more going on than us just singing some good songs. Engage your spirit and realize we came to do business. We came to legislate some things in the spirit. We came to hear from God through revelation and then send it back to the earth through prophetic declaration. We, We legislate the kingdom of God in the earth. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand. Thank you for being patient with me. It's eight minutes after. Let's pray. Father, just lift your hands to the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the mysteries of your book. Lord, I pray that you would help us to enter into it. Just keep your hands up. I I, I felt this week, I just felt this burning in the heart of God, this desire of God to release fresh revelation on this house. There are things that God's wanting to bring us into that are only going to come by revelation. If we don't understand it, we'll never enter into it. We'll never embrace it. We'll never function in those realities. And so, Lord, I just ask right now, God, I, I extend my hand towards each of these. Lord, I ask that you would open the eyes of their understanding and the knowledge of you. Lord, I ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. God, that you would take us from glory to glory. We want to cooperate with you. Father, I ask, just put your hands out before you. Father, I ask that each and every one of these, Lord, would understand the fearsome power that you have placed within their hands as believers. Lord, that they release your word. It sends angels into battle. It shifts governmental affairs. Lord, help us to understand who we are and the authority we wield. And help us to use it under your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.